Good luck to good luck to the to the post. Good luck to the post edit. It'll be fine for them. <laughs> they'll, they'll have fun with that. Yeah. Sorry, Cronus. Sorry, Leon. Sorry, <laughs> Raphael. Hello there and welcome to the UFLX podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and in this episode we'll be speaking to our UFLX colleague Thomas Barlint about the recent elections in Slovakia and I'm going to be sitting down with a Freedom House analyst called Noah Bion to talk about their annual report into global democracy. With me of course is everyone's favourite global democrat, Gabriel Hedengren. Thank you Ewan. How are you doing this week? Taking it back. Uh, I'm good, I'm good. Busy, super tired of Reading about Corona, yeah. self-isolating, but other than that, fun. A lot of polls, a lot of interesting interviews. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all good. The year started to get into gear. Yeah, I'm I'm all right. This this isn't going to be a coronavirus-heavy episode, dear listener. You can get plenty of the the good information that you need from your favorite news outlet about what is appearing to be quite serious. But we will be yeah. starting our news bulletin round in Italy to talk about the coronavirus. So the European Union, uh, as well as most national governments, are now taking formal steps to prevent and slow the spread of COVID-19. But most seriously, Italy has formally closed its borders and recommended that everyone within the country only travels when absolutely necessary. And to facilitate the national quarantine, the government has introduced directives halting the need for citizens to meet mortgage payments as the Italian coronavirus death toll has now reached over 600 people at the time of recording Analysts suggest that this kind of economic intervention will become more common as the crisis goes, particularly as the Dow Jones this week suffered its largest single day point drop in its history. Now, the European Parliament has told any staff or members who have been to Italy in the last 14 days to self-isolate and has closed to all but essential staff access just on today of recording the 11th of March. From all of us, of course, at Europolex, we wish best wishes to everyone across our continent and hope that you can all stay safe and healthy yeah wash your hands mm. um and now uh that'll be it for coronavirus for today now we're going on to slovenia so in slovenia janis janja of the slovenian democratic party uh which is part of the european people's party group in the eu parliament uh is looking to lead his third ever government after the country's president announced he would give the political veteran a shot at getting a cabinet accepted by parliament last week. He's going to be replacing a centre-left prime minister, Marian Shane, uh, who resigned in January after struggling to get you know, meaningful legislation through parliament, a lot of it around healthcare reform. Um, while Sharik was hoping to trigger an early election following that, it now seems as if uh, Janusz Janczyk's Slovenian Democratic Party will be able to form a majority government along with Central Party of Modern Center, or SNC, which is a member of ALDE, or the Liberal Party Group in the new parliament, and the Centrite New Slovenia, which is a member of the European People's Party Group as well. There is also a fun little party called DESUS, which is a pensioners party, uh, which is a member of the European Democratic Party. Jansa is, as I said, it'll be the third time for him, three times lucky. He previously led the country from 2004 to 2008 and 2012 to 2013, with New Slovenia and Desus also supporting his previous two terms. So looking to be a pretty stable new government in Slovenia, which is uh, good 
himself. Now looking further east, heading all the way to Europe's eastern frontier, to Ukraine, uh, and another government change. Uh, as part of a government reshuffle, uh, President of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky has ousted Prime Minister Alexei Honcharuk. Now Honcharuk uh, had previously in January submitted a letter of resignation after recordings were released in which he allegedly criticized Zelensky's financial competence. His resignation was not accepted at the time, but concerns within Ukraine that uh, Zelensky's popular government reform program may have stalled as a result of these tensions, and that's what prompted the reshuffle. Now, these moves have been seen as an attempt to divert attention from his country's struggling foreign policy agenda, with talks with Russia hitting roadblocks, and the impeachment trial of President Trump drawing the actor-turned-politician unwanted attention. Now, on domestic issues, his attempts to improve economic conditions in Ukraine have struggled recently, particularly with the delay to an IMF loan package. Now, Zelensky hopes the newly appointed Prime Minister, Denis Shmigal, will be able to use his experience in the energy industry to attempt to drive through police and business law reforms. At the same time, the new cabinet's top priority is to launch a new IMF-funded program. So now to France, where, to no one's surprise, there are um, huge marches against pension reform. So what we're finding in France right now is that last week, President Emmanuel Macron survived not one but two votes of no confidence in his government over his party's decision to force controversial pension reforms through the parliament without a vote. So while his liberal party, La République En Marche, has a comfortable majority in the country's parliament, Macron and his cabinet said it wanted to avoid prolonged debate about the reforms. And as you might expect, since this is France we're talking about again, uh, this brought in thousands of people to go out in the streets to protest, uh, with thousands again just turning out just in Paris, the capital city, and a large national mobilization march is also being planned for later this month. Um, so the demonstrations and the vote of no confidence are really part of this huge mobilization against these reforms and also Macron and his government uh, more broadly. Um, and we've seen strikes in Paris and all over France really since December 5th and before that as well. So this leaves Macron and the Philip government uh, being challenged from both sides, really, from the left and right. Uh, so on the left side, you have the France Insoumise, and then on the right side, you have National Rally, and they both voted uh, against the government in this case on these two different votes. So as most of you will remember, Macron was elected with a large majority against the National Rallies for Independent in 2017, uh, and he faces re-election in 2022, so in two years' time. And at this point, looking at the polls, it looks very likely that it's going to be a matchup again between him and Marine Le Pen. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see. We will indeed have to wait and see. Now, speaking of um, elections that seem to be happening more than once, we're going to go and talk about even further east um, than my previous bulletin. We'll talk about Israel. We're after a third election in under a year. Inconclusive results have been returned again. Now, so scheming has begun again, uh, particularly amongst anti-Netanyahu um, leaders uh, led by their centrist Blue and White Party uh, and their leader, Benny Gantz. Now, the group hopes to oust incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu by creating a law that would prevent an indicted member of parliament from becoming prime minister. Now, as you will remember, last year, Benjamin Netanyahu was indicted for corruption charges, so he would be prevented from staying in power by this new legislation. Um, now, however, to get this law to pass, Gantz would be required to cooperate with the Arab minority party joint list, something that 
is fairly unprecedented in Israeli politics. Now, blue and white MPs are rebelling against this cooperation already, um, leading many to speculate there may well be another election again soon. It's a lot of elections. But we are, of course, Europe elects, and our sibling account is Asia elects, and follow them for all the latest coverage on Israel and the whole of the continent to Europe's east. Um, with special thanks here goes to uh, team leader over there, Adam Lawless, for helping us get together this little bulletin. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. Friend of the oh, pod. True friend, friend of, of the, the pod. pod. I like how you said, oh, elections, so many elections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I probably shouldn't complain too much about elections. If there aren't any elections, I'll be out of the job. But yeah. um, <laughs> speaking of elections, where have you been this week? What have you been talking about? So this week I've been speaking to our lovely colleague Thomas about the recent elections in Slovakia. talk about the recent elections in Slovakia. Uh, so on the 29th of February, Slovakia held parliamentary elections, resulting in the electorate clearly demonstrating a wish of governmental change. So for the first time since 2006, the central-led Social Democratic Party, Smer, did not become the biggest party, losing close to 10 percentage points following years of various corruption scandals. The winner of the election, on the other hand, was the center-right Olano, that gained 13 percentage points and became the biggest party with 25%. While no alliance has an outright majority in the parliament resulting from the election, everything points to the party's leader, Igor Matovich, becoming the country's new prime minister. Today I'm very happy to have our Europolex colleague, Thomas Balint, with me to discuss the election results, how the parties have reacted to it in the past week and a half or so, and what the future is likely to hold for this Central European country. Hi, Thomas. Hi. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. How about yeah, you? I'm good, I'm good. Welcome to the podcast. So, at this point, it seems pretty much certain that Olano's Igor Matovich will be the next head of government in Slovakia. Uh, and while we know, you know it sits with the European People's Party in the European Parliament, it doesn't seem like a very traditional movement, per se. Uh, can you very briefly summarize sort of what party it is uh, for those listeners who've never heard of it before? Yeah, so as you said, Igor Matovich is going to be the new prime minister. In terms of Olano, it's not a party, it's rather a movement with the primary focus of fighting against corruption. It always was, and it still is, formed out of activists, whether it's anti-corruption activists, religious activists, experts, people from the NGO sector and independent politicians. Igor Matovich is a charismatic leader. He was firstly elected 10 years ago on Freedom and Solidarity's list, not as a party member, but as an independent. He then formed his own movement, which stood in the subsequent election and won nearly 9%. And four years later, it won 11% of the vote share. So yes, uh, Orano is not a traditional member of EPP. But most of their MPs are ideologically aligned with EPP's views. But it has to be said that some of their MPs are strongly socially conservative and strongly religious, while some are socially liberal and they even support same-sex civil partnerships. Okay, cool. But then they're united by you know, the fight in anti-corruption. Yeah, that's that's the main 
that's what basically unites them all. Looking at opinion polls from Slovakia from the past year, uh, Olano's growth over the past few months, and not more than that, is you know really remarkable. So at the start of 2020, it averaged below 10%, uh, and it got just 5% in the EU elections last May, and now they just, they're at a quarter percent of the vote, um, just a week and a half ago. Um, how come? Like, what would you attribute this rapid growth to for them? Yeah, that's right. And it's quite remarkable that they won 25% of the vote share in the election because it was really unexpected. So Matovic, the leader of the party, knows how to attract attention, whether it's from the media or just the general public. He was always really loud and he was probably the loudest critic of Smer and corruption in general. What changed this time is that the corruption had never been more visible. The investigation of Jan Kociak's murder opened a Pandora's box, revealing links between oligarchs, businessmen, politicians, as well as judges and other government officials. Interesting. So I guess before sort of jumping into the current government formation, why don't we jump directly into Smear, so the previous centre-left government party, was its electoral loss, which was also quite monumental, inevitable, would you say? And how do you suspect it and its supporters will react to this new political landscape in Slovakia after the election? Smear was slowly declining in any way, even before the murder happened. It reached its peak in 2012 when it won 44% of the vote share. However, the murder, combined with the allegations of corruption and the public discontent, meant that Smer numbers declined further down. And I do expect that Smer is going to decline further because I'm not sure that it has much to offer to its supporters because other parties started to copy Smer's agenda targeting the same voters with similar policies and promises. Yeah, it's a real uphill battle for, for them then. So let's go back to Olano then. So while they had this great success, rapid growth, still just 25%, that doesn't make a, a, a government on its own, obviously. So they'll have to rely on numerous coalition partners. Uh, why don't you walk us through uh, the nature of them and how united you think Olano and them will be as they start ruling Slovakia? Yeah, so Matovic doesn't need all other parties to form a coalition with him. However, he is trying to get a supermajority to pass through constitutional laws. So that for democratic so-called democratic opposition parties are Smerolina, SAS, Freedom and Solidarity, and Za Ludi. Smerolina has a right-wing rhetoric, it's strongly anti-immigration and economically rather centre-left. It is socially conservative and is a member of the right-wing identity and democracy group in the European Parliament. SAS, Freedom and Solidarity, is a classical liberal party, economically centre-right and socially liberal. They are a member of the European Conservatives and Reformists in the European Parliament. 
And the smallest party, Zaluyi, is a centre-right party, it's socially moderate, and it was formed by the ex-president Andrei Kiska, it intends to join the European People's Party. Interesting, so they're all sort of centre-right-wing, leaning on different axes. Yeah, that's right. Do you think they'll be able to stay united? Is it going to be a bumpy ride for Olano? Yeah, Um, so the four parties are all a little bit different, I would say, and what is often seen is that Smerodina is... There is a big tension between some of these parties. For example, Smerodina and Zaludi have many disagreements, not just about the policy proposals, but also about who is going to be appointed to the new government. Freedom and Solidarity has an issue with Smerodina's economic proposals, and they see them as irresponsible. However, the negotiations are still taking place and it seems like all four parties are making many concessions and they are trying to act in a pragmatic manner. So I just want to touch on something a bit more nerdy for all of our for our listeners at the end. So uh, in Slovakia, there's an electoral threshold of 5%, which is sort of at the higher end um, for EU standards. And this time, quite crazy, at least from my perspective, the result was that 28.5% of all votes, so more than a quarter, were for parties that ended up with zero seats in parliament because they had less than 5%. And while, you know, in certain countries that number is always quite high, it's more than doubled since the last election when it was 13. Do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think this is just a one-off thing? Uh, Is it an issue? I mean, it's a really high percent. It's actually bigger than Olano. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's more than 800,000 voters who are not going to be represented. One of the issues was that the threshold is even higher for coalition. Progressive Slovakia and Spolu were a coalition and they missed out by 930 votes. Oh no, for them. Yeah, which is a crazy number. They they did uh, file in a petition to the Supreme Court and they might request a recount of some votes as there have been some minor issues. Okay. So what was the threshold they couldn't meet? Uh, They needed to get at least 7%. They got 6.96%. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was, yeah, that was one big thing. Another one was uh, Christian Democrats, KDH which received 4.85%. Yeah. So again, a really small number. Yeah. Like so, so in the end, it sort of just happens to us. You have these two sort of big movements and it all happening at once, resulting in this huge amount of voters just not having representation. Yeah. I mean, the turnout in this election was nearly 66% which was the highest one since 2002. Okay. There's no doubt that many voters will feel underrepresented and dissatisfied. Yeah. And in addition, Progressive Slovakia Spolu represented the most liberal and the most pro-EU voters. Okay. So again, all of these voters are not going to have an adequate representation. 
even though uh, the leader of SAS, Freedom and Solidarity, said that his party is going to represent these liberal voters. Okay, what lessons can be drawn from this? I think that what this election shows is that the manifestos don't matter as much anymore. It's all about the emotion and about how loud you can be, because that seems to attract many voters. If you look at what Orlando did to attract its voters, you will see that they try to be really loud in terms of the anti-corruption message. So simple, loud, clear campaigns is what's going to win yeah. voters in 2020. Yeah, I mean, what Orlando did just before the election was several big things. One of them was online poll. Anyone could take part and either agree or disagree with 11 different questions. It received a lot of attention in the media. Even other opposition party leaders had to talk about it. So just smart, sort of smart modern campaigning from them, obviously, that paid off in the short term. Um, thank you, Thomas. It's all right. For talking through this election with me uh, and all of our listeners. Um, I guess it'll be interesting now to see how this coalition government uh, performs and, uh, you know, we'll continue to post polls and any insights as they come along. Thank you. Yeah, it's all right. Thank you. Hi there, folks. Ewan here, sitting down with Noah Bion, an analyst with the NGO Freedom House, who specializes uh, in looking at Europe. Hello, Noah. Hi, Ewan. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, good to have you on. Now, Noah um, looks specifically at Europe, but Freedom House is uh, is based in the US, analyzes the quality of democracy and um, freedom of speech and things like that around the world. And they produce every year a very well-respected report, which appraises the quality of democracy in every country in the world, as well as some partially recognized states as well. Now, every country is given a score uh, out of 100 based on a number of criteria, which we're going to get onto in a minute, and then labeled uh, free, partly free, and not free, are the three categories that they use to classify different levels of democracy. So, Noah, that's the basic intro. Could you give us a little bit more of understanding about how you get to those conclusions? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been doing this survey in one form of an, or another since 1972. Uh, our most recent edition, the 2020 edition, covers events uh, in 210 countries and territories uh, uh, from the calendar year 2019. In its current incarnation, like you said, the survey is um, a 100-point scale. It's looking at political rights and civil liberties as they're experienced by ordinary peoples in territories or countries. Um, the scores, which are sort of the meat of the survey, are broken down into 10 questions looking at political rights and uh, 15 questions looking at civil liberties. Each question or indicator is scored on a scale of zero to four, with zero indicating the least or smallest degree of freedom, four indicating the greatest degree. Drilling down a bit more, the political rights questions are broken down into three categories. One looks at electoral processes, how the executive is elected, how the legislature is elected, what the electoral framework looks like. The next section looks at political participation as well as pluralism. So what kind of opposition parties exist? Um, are there um, vehicles for minority groups to uh, participate in uh, uh, democratic processes? 
And then uh, the last category in that section looks at the actual functioning of government. We focus on whether or not the people who were elected to rule are actually making decisions, as well as corruption and transparency. The civil liberties questions uh, are broken down into four categories. Those look at freedom of expression and belief, so freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and so on. Another section looks at associational rights, so the right to assembly, the right to form NGOs, and so forth. Another looks at rule of law. That includes notions like judicial independence, as well as due process and uh, freedom from uh, physical harm. And finally, we look at personal autonomy and individual rights, including uh, economic mobility, um, the ability to express one's uh, uh, sexual orientation openly, and so on and so forth. So no mean feat there. That's quite a pretty quite a broad remit that you've got going yes. there. Um, so let's just look at this 2019 report then. What are the main global trends? What's standing out at the moment as the changes in global democracy? Well, informed uh, readers will not be surprised to learn that democracy continues to be in decline around the world. This year, we observed the um, 14th consecutive democratic decline. And by that, I mean that more countries saw their scores slip than uh, saw their scores improve. In fact, this year, the gap between the number of countries whose scores have declined and the number of countries whose scores has have improved actually widened considerably with respect to last year. Uh, in particular, we have noticed an intensification of attacks on minority rights, and by the same token, um, uh, a kind of blinkered notion of majority rule seems to be uh, 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 gripping both hybrid democracies and established democracies the world over, including in Europe. So yeah, looking a little bit deeper at Europe, um, it might be easy to, we often, you know, when we use the Freedom House reports uh, from Europe Alexa when we're covering uh, less democratic nations, you know, it's an invaluable resource, but let's perhaps flip it on its head. You know, what are the good news stories from Europe this year? It might be hard to find loads of good news in the last 12 months. It feels like it's been a pretty dingy few few months for all sorts of reasons, but what are the good news stories for democracy in Europe? Who's getting better? Well, let's first remember that Europe has perhaps the um, largest reservoir of democratic uh, legacy and an institutional strength out of any region in the world. So traditionally, it's been the most democratic or the most free region that we've assessed. In fact, there's only one not free country in Europe, uh, which is Turkey. Um, in terms of success stories, I think the biggest one and the one on everyone's lips is North Macedonia. It improved by four points on our scale. Uh, this largely is a result of the, um, well, now former government's uh, sustained reform efforts, which have really undone some of the worst excesses of the uh, Gruevsky regime that was in power for a long, long time in that country. So we've seen press freedom increases. We've seen um, an opening up of the political space. There's been a reduction in political violence. And of course, last year, the country held competitive uh, and largely free and fair presidential elections. Uh, it's heading into what will be highly contested parliamentary elections in April. But I think the fact that those elections will be so contested is actually a testament to how far the country has come uh, in, in, in just a few years. So, I can also talk about Romania briefly. Um, it's a more fraught situation, but last year, access to the franchise was expanded. Traditionally, it's been really hard for diaspora voters in Romania to actually vote in those elections, long lines, um, potential voter suppression. Uh, uh, but, but there were several changes made after the European parliamentary elections in the country, which made that uh, more possible. Um, so that's another um, qualified success story last year. Right. There's also been an uptick in Latvia as well and another EU country seeing improvements. Yeah, so um, Latvia, as you may recall, uh, was shaken a few years back by the uh, so-called oligarch talks. Um, so the, the coalition government that formed at the beginning of 2019 
has made a pretty concerted effort to um, diminish the extent to which unelected interests like, um, you know, uh, business magnates can actually, um, you know, have a say in the country's politics. So we're really encouraged that um, power is being returned to the voters in that country. Yeah. So moving to the sort of slightly more concerning stories, we've been looking at a country like Montenegro, who dropped three points in your scale um, last year on the year before. What's going on in Montenegro? Montenegro is indeed a sorry story. Uh, it's a partly free country. This year, we declined its corruption score. The beginning of the year saw what was called the envelope affairs, in which a um, ally of the ruling Democratic Party of Socialists, which has been in power for 30 years, revealed that he had been illegally financing the party. Um, at year end, uh, there was another scandal in which it was revealed that the Ministry of Tourism and Sustainable Development was running an extortion ring uh, in its ranks. Um, we also uh, downgraded the country for due process violations in the alleged coup trial in which members of the uh, prominent political opposition group, the Democratic Front, were sentenced to uh, multi-year jail sentences. So the country is really an object lesson in, 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 in the state capture that inevitably results from 30 years of, of uncontested one-party rule. So looking a bit further east, let's look at Georgia. Had a, had a two-point drop as well. Georgia. So um, we downgraded them on two axes this year. Uh, first, we registered a decline in the ability of political parties to form. This is because when the founder of TBC Bank, which is one of the country's largest banks, announced that he would be forming his own political party, conveniently, uh, decades old money laundering or fraud charges were revived against him in a bid to um, prevent him from actually forming a political mobilization that could challenge the incumbent Georgian Dream Party. Secondly, um, we downgraded Georgia for freedom of assembly violations. That's because during the um, violent June 2019 protests, a number of protesters were uh, hit with rubber bullets, which left them blinded. So the kind of police brutality that we saw there was very alarming. Mm. Now, looking um, towards the West, the only, uh, I think I think I'm right in saying the only decliner in Western Europe was Spain, um, lost two points. What, what What's that all about? Is this a product of uh, events progressing in Catalonia, or is there something deeper going on? Uh, the answer is both. Uh, so Spain remains um, a very strong democracy. We registered two declines, one related to the Catalonia issue. Um, we were concerned about the arbitrary pre-trial detention of a number of uh, secessionist Catalan political leaders. So uh, we declined them for that. In addition, we were concerned by the inability of the country to form a working government for most of last year, which led to rule by decree from the uh, um, temporary executive uh, leadership. So. Uh, that was our representative rule category, and because the duly elected representatives were not actually able to make decisions about policies, um, we registered a decline there. I anticipate that that score will go up this year now that the country has a uh, working coalition government. Just to finish up on a sort of, uh, yeah, a more lighter note, it's, it's, not, it's no secret that the Scandinavian countries do well in this kind of survey. Both Sweden and Finland have 100 out of 100 scores in your study. Norway as well. And Norway as well. Yes, exactly. You know, what, what are the Nordic countries? What have they got the knack of that the rest of us can't quite do? Well, let me first say that a perfect score does not mean these countries are perfect. Uh, so, um, you know, in particular, uh, the migration issue remains an acute challenge in these countries. They haven't always done a, a sensible job taking care of folks looking for um, asylum, integrating those folks and so on. That said, what all of these countries do is actively strive to find ways to improve their democracies and address the challenges that face them. To give an example, Sweden has a ministry of democracy, 
And in the past, the minister has come to Freedom House and said, you know, how can we do better on our score? Can you please maybe knock us down a few pegs so that we have room to improve? So that kind of proactivity, um, I think, is is what separates these countries from from the rest. Wow, that is that's quite a job for you to to be asked to to push you down, not to be asked to be pushed up by a country. That's absolutely fascinating. No, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on. And maybe who knows, after next year's report, hopefully we'll all be good news. What do you think? It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good news. I'm not so sure about that. Um, I think that this year, uh, given all that's going on, is going to put a lot of democratic uh, institutions under a certain amount of strain. And I'm curious to see uh, how voters will react to that. Great. Thanks very much, Noah. Cheers. You Thank you. As ever, I'm sure you'll all be waiting in anticipation for who's who in the European Commission segment of our podcast, which I'm sure you all love deeply. Um, I do, because I love talking about these commissioners and their vague titles. Um, speaking of, I hear you have a commissioner with a vague title to talk about. Yes, can you believe? Uh, so today I'm going to talk briefly about a commissioner called Margarete Mistaya. Uh, and she's commissioner for, wait for it, a Europe fit for the digital age. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? And she's the Danish commissioner representing the Danish Social Liberal Party, which, as you could guess, probably sits with Renew Europe group in the European Parliament. Uh, she serves as the party's leader from 2007 to 2014. Before joining the European Commission, Ms. Daya was a member of the Danish Parliament, going on to become a government minister, including spending two years as Minister of Ecclesiastical Affairs, three years as Minister of Education, and then three years as Minister of Economy and Interior Affairs. Great city, in other words. And then in 2014, she was appointed to the Juncker Commission as Commissioner for Competition, uh, which is a role uh, she also still has under von der Leyen. So after being mooted as a potential Commission President herself, she has instead become an executive vice president of the von der Leyen Commission uh, for, as I said before, Europe fit for the digital age. And as you might guess, as the title suggests, her role is focused around business and industrial strategy relating to the digital single market, which includes coordinating the commission's work around digital taxation and a European approach to data and artificial intelligence. Now, I've got a commissioner who has a less vague title to talk about, and that is Ireland's member of the current European Commission College, uh, who is Phil Hogan, who holds the role of a Commissioner for Trade. Now, this role sees him focus on EU trade policy, as you would imagine, and the EU's relationship with the World Trade Organization, as well as promoting um, the EU's role as a financial trading bloc. Now, Hogan is also responsible for ensuring uh, foreign subsidies in the internal market do not distort the European economy. He's another commissioner who also served under Jean-Claude Juncker, then as the Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Development. Uh, in domestic politics, back in Ireland, he was a member of the Irish Upper House, the Senate, uh, for 1987 to 1989, and then of the Lower House uh, from 1989 to 2014, representing the centre-right Fine Gael Party, uh, which means he is a member of the European People's Party. He served as Ireland's Environment Minister prior to his nomination to the European Commission in 2014. Wow, what an exciting round of who is who. I I love our commission. Yeah, they get more exciting by the week. Who will be on next week? Who knows? You're going to have to listen. And I say next week. It's not really next week. It's in two weeks because this is a fortnightly podcast and not a weekly podcast. But I should know that because 
I'm one yeah. of their hosts. Yeah. Good. To be fair, it sometimes feels like a week between them, though, I must say. Yes. Life goes fast. So it's a high-stakes, <laughs> fast-paced game, uh, European politics. Fast-paced. For sure. So many elections. Well, thank you, Ewan, for another amazing podcast uh, between the two of us. And before we actually leave you all to do other less interesting and productive stuff, I'd like you to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between these episodes. It's at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex if you follow us on Instagram. See you later. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronis Karempolis. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. Oh dear.